welcome to the RSP cast, film and data. Adam Hart there, Matt Waldman. But this show, hey, listen, if Gene Brown will like this show, then I'll take that anecdotal evidence as a reason that we're going to keep doing this thing on a weekly basis. Um, Adam, thanks again for joining me. Always happy to. Like I said, I, uh, I'm one of those guys who likes the sound of my own voice. So. Well, we're going to hear your voice a whole lot because we're going to talk about your work on regression this week, who performed well, but you have questions about whether that's sustainable for fantasy, who caught your eye that underperformed, but you doubt it's a, as much of a long-term issue. And we'll talk about blending systems and intuition. So let's get started with regression because you, 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 know, you write a, a weekly column about regression. Tell, tell any of our listeners who aren't Football Guy subscribers and, and should be, um, about the work that you've, you've done on regression, how you feature that concept and, and your, um, your perspective in writing about it. Yeah, so the go-to example I always use, um, if you follow basketball, Steph Curry, uh, for his lifetime, is about a 90% free throw shooter. Uh, he lines up to take 10 free throws. He's probably going to hit nine of them. Uh, on a game-to-game -game basis, you know, sometimes he'll hit less than that. Maybe he'll go two of four from the field, but you don't watch him hit 50% of free throws in a game and say, oh, maybe he's a 50% free throw shooter now. No, because you, you've got this huge sample size that says Steph Curry's a 90% free throw shooter. You know, free throws haven't changed. They're still the same thing that he's been hitting for 90% for his career. So you think, oh, he had, a, he had a fluke game and he's going to go back to his previous career average. He's, you know, go back, regress to his previous career average, his, his true mean. Um, and free throws are the easiest way to illustrate it because you're standing in the same spot every time, the hoop's in the same spot every time, um, there's no defense, the shot's the same every time. But basically everything has a true mean and over a long enough timeline, everybody's gonna regress to that. You know, Patrick Mahomes threw, what was it five touchdowns this last week? right? Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL. I don't think there's really that much debate. You know, some people might prefer Allen, but Josh, uh, Patrick Mahomes is going to throw a lot of touchdowns this year. He's not going to average five touchdowns a week because he has a true talent level, a true performance level, and that level is lower than five touchdowns a week. So going forward, we're going to expect him to regress to that. Um, and just because everybody's going to rest to the mean doesn't mean everybody's going to regress to the same mean. You know, Carson Wentz had a lot of touchdowns. Patrick Mahomes had a lot of touchdowns. Going forward, they're both going to throw less, but I think Patrick Mahomes will probably throw more touchdowns than Carson Wentz this year, assuming both players make it through the season healthy. I don't think that's a hot take. Um, but still, you know, Patrick Mahomes, best quarterback in the NFL, still has a true performance level he's going to regress to. Um, Carson Wentz, kind of a fringe starter kind of guy, um, he has a true performance level that he's going to regress to. And it's very actionable in fantasy football. You know, a lot of people are making decisions based on how many points players have scored to this point in the season. Um, but you don't get credit for points that are already scored. You want to make decisions based on how many points players are going to sco score going forward. And to do that, you have to estimate what is a guy's true talent level um, and just make decisions based on that, not based on what they've done so far. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And I, and that's where I think probably looking at, you know, at film and data work is very helpful, of course. I mean, you look at a player like Chase Claypool, I think would be a good example with his rookie year where he had a, a strong tear 
And when after about six or seven weeks, I remember reviewing Claypool on film and you could see that what was happening is that one is that the opposing defenses, when they played zone, they their first inclination in terms of sliding over to one side of the field during the initial drop of the quarterback tended to slide more towards either Deontay Johnson or Juju Smith-Schuster or their tight end. And so Claypool really didn't... Claypool would run into a zone and that zone wouldn't constrict as quickly towards him as it would everybody else. And then with man-to-man, you would see things like um, defenders playing boundary routes against him. And when he would get tight to the boundary, they wouldn't stay tight on him or play as physical with him. They would actually just... You could literally see them far enough away that they were presuming that he was too tight to boundary to be able to make a grab. And then he'd use his height and win some plays against at the boundary that were just great displays of athletic ability or burn them with his speed that he didn't, they didn't anticipate um, to the level that they probably should have. After about six or seven games, you started the Titans, I think were the first team that did this. They started to now shade their zone to where Claypool was the early priority they started to play him tight enough that they were willing to penalize, um, you know, draw penal- penalties, playing physical with him at the boundary on plays that they didn't in the past. And then they were more apt to playing him tighter earlier in coverage. And from that, and you'd see that change in terms of how teams played him over the year, years. And so when you look at at elements like that, even you can you start to you know, that gives you an idea not only of that player individually, but from an NFL point of view, I always say this with quarterback play, Adam, is that scouts often talk about that it takes, the the NFL usually collects about four to six games worth of um, information on film before they decide um, to implement some sort of game plan that's a little bit more advanced than or not more advanced, but has more tweaks geared towards a specific quarterback. They wait. They wait for about four to six weeks to accumulate their scouting reports and figure out what they're going to do. And what they're going to do isn't necessarily. They may have like ten insights about that quarterback that are unique to that quarterback, but they decide that well, we don't have the personnel to really execute three of those things. The other three things, the evidence isn't strong enough for us to know for sure. Um, and then there's these other four items that we feel like we can do something from a game plan perspective to test him at moments during the game. And if one of those things works out well, we may keep going to that well to make him prove that he can beat us when we throw this wrinkle at him. And I think, and, and you find across the board that every team um will wait to accumulate tape on quarterbacks and i think that there's this phenomenon that a lot of times quarterbacks who there's a lot of rookie quarterbacks who start strong people get excited about their prospects and then they start their performance starts to regress and and tail off and then sometimes what happens on top of that is that and part of that is is that defenses start throwing those things bit by bit and then the the defense is the in subsequent weeks that face that quarterback, collect that information too. 
and you start seeing them try different things. They're not going to try and throw everything at the quarterback. They're just going to throw certain things until there's a book on that quarterback where they go, listen, Matt Ryan tends to be a slow reader in the red zone. Or um, Derek Carr, if you put a lot of pressure on him in the pocket, um, he he's someone that is going to short circuit a little more often with certain types of pressure. Like Kenny Pickett was a guy that he can move out of the pocket. But if and if he sees the pressure coming pre snap, he 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 knows where to go and he's he does he doesn't short circuit in terms of his execution. But if he if the pressure arrives from an unexpected source or it pops in a flash of color that he didn't expect from a region that it did come from, that's when his game short circuits and his and his decision making goes in these things. So when they start to learn about how they can execute in that fashion then you start looking at it and it's about them throwing those things at them over the next maybe, and I'm estimating, but you know, like maybe next eight to 12 games because a lot of scouts talk about that NFL quarterbacks as an example of this. It, it takes two years to really see what you have. You know, the first year might be about do they perform can now that they've acclimated themselves to understanding the verbiage of their offense, the speed of the game, um, their game plan and their teammates, do they look somewhat like they did on tape in college? And then the next 12 to, to 14 games can be about now that the NFL starts throwing things at them that they didn't face in college or to a level of um, sophistication that they didn't see at college, can they start to develop their game and grow to the standard that they need to play at in the NFL beyond what they were in college. And I think that's why you see a lot of quarterbacks by year three, year four, who were franchise guys turn into journeyman starters or backups. And I think that's that's a that may be more of a a film example of you know of how that that plays into what you're uh, what you end, we end up observing or estimating on uh, you, you know with a player in fantasy or on or from a data perspective. Yeah, so um, I was talking last week about how kind of a big difference between your process and mine is you're looking at, at inputs, at processes, and I'm just strictly looking at outputs, at results. Um, my favorite piece of analytics writing of all time actually had basically no analytics in it at all, but it was um, stop thinking like a GM, start thinking like a player. Um, and it was written, I think, on fan graphs uh, about baseball. And so like fantasy baseball um, GMs will look at a, a hitter who's in a slump and they'll say, it's okay, don't worry that he's in a slump, he's gonna regress, he's gonna go back to his previous average. Um, and there's no real prescription offered by that. It's just waited out, the slump's gonna end, everybody's slump ends, everybody gets back. Um, but from the player's standpoint, that's not helpful at all. You, you know, if a player's in the middle of a slump, you don't say, eh, don't do anything, it'll be fine, it'll sort itself out. Instead, you know, from a player's standpoint, it's like, oh, this is what's wrong with your swing and you've started doing this and you're compensating this way and you need to, you know, get your hands higher here or, you know, get your elbows up or, and they're tweaking and they're adjusting and they're doing whatever to fix whatever's causing the slump. And then that results in them ending their hitting streak. Um, you know, from, from my perspective, from, from the place I'm sitting, it's easy to look at regression to the mean as just like this implacable universal force that just you know like descends down from on high and says patrick mahomes you have been producing too much let's start <laughs> suppressing your production or or 
you know, Tom Brady, you have not pr producing enough. We're going to like create these magical winds of production that will lift your production. But in reality, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's a series of processes that are interacting um, until they reach this equilibrium that, and that equilibrium exists at this, that what I call the true talent level. Um, and over time, there'll be disturbances in that equilibrium. Somebody will, you know, maybe you're in a game where you find a really good matchup advantage and you exploit that and your production's higher. You know, maybe you're in a game where the defense has a really good matchup advantage and they're exploiting that your production is lower. But over time, the give and take and the push and pull and all of those, you know, getting a book on a quarterback and all of those forces um, are in conflict and they, they balance each other out and you wind up with regression. Uh, so yeah, like I said, from your standpoint, that's exactly what regression looks like. That it's it's things changing and it's people doing stuff and it's it's finding inefficiencies and and finding how to fix those inefficiencies. And from my standpoint, it's just it's magic. You know, there's the gods of regression are coming down from on high, and I'll I'll refer to them sometimes in my column. You know, like the regression gods. I hope the regression gods are kind to me. <laughs> uh, but I don't think obviously there's not regression gods. It's it's people tinkering with processes. But I don't need to concern myself with any of that, which is good because, as I mentioned before, work is not one of my strong suits. So anytime I can kind of just elide that whole thing, that's good for me. I love this. So, I, you know, I laugh because it's it's so well explained. But at the same time, I when when you bring up something like magic and regression gods, I think I the first thing that comes to my mind and I start thinking is, and do you have do you have a kid in your house right now who's young enough that still draws pictures and 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 does art and things like that because i would love to see what and one of adam harstead's kids would draw if you said draw regression god you know or what you know draw your picture of what you think regression would look like and i think you know we we i think i think gene bramwell at least who's probably the one person listening to this show right so he he uh I think he needs to see a picture of like the regression God. I, I think that would be, I, I need to see a picture of the regression God. <laughs> I'll, I'll task him with it and we'll, uh, we'll come back next week and I'll show you. So who's performed well, you know, last week that you just have questions that it's sustainable for fantasy. Yeah. So early, early on, I mean, after one week, um, there's always jokes about the one-week knee-jerk reactions. Like, right. really, there's not even enough data out there to to even be calling for regression. You know, um, you look at um, you just wrote an article on James Robin and, and Travis Etienne, um, and we're looking at like their snaps were split basically right down the middle. Um, like, I can't even say is that going to regress? If that's going to regress, in which direction? I don't I don't know what the true mean is yet. Um, so usually for my column the first week or two of the year, I'm more laying out concepts while we build up the data set that I can now look and say like, okay, now this, this is clearly unsustainable. Um, the big one is anybody whose production is not in line with their participation. Um, that's almost certainly going to regress. Like a big one was OJ Howard. OJ Howard had two touchdowns for the Texans. I think he was only on the field for like 18% of their passing snaps. Yeah, Like he, he, he played like five snaps and got two touchdowns out of it. You know, if everybody was scoring two touchdowns every five snaps they played, then you'd have receivers like Jamar Chase finishing the year with like 187 touchdowns. It's just not a sustainable rate of production. Now, the result is either OJ Howard's snap share is going to come up from 18% or else his touchdowns are going to come down from, you know, 40% 
of his snaps. Um, obviously, that second one's going to regress. Uh, the question is whether the participation will regress upwards enough to offset that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I don't usually target like specific things early in the year, just because I don't have enough data. Was was the 18% a fluke or was it a trend? Um, I like to get usually a couple weeks. Um, but I mean, I can tell you the, the two touchdowns on five snaps or whatever it was. That's like Jalen Johnson last year for the Saints when he had like, I think he had two or three um, of Jameis's touchdowns against the Packers. So we got the same phenomenon here in terms yeah. of in terms of that situation. What we'll, as you said, what we'll wait to see is whether they're going to make Howard a, a more featured part of the offense and they continue to roll these two tight end sets and have you know, run these double seams with him and Jordan or or whoever the other tight end is at Auclair, I think, is probably the other guy. And, you know, but even then, I would think you'd focus on O.J. Howard if you're the defense, but we'll find out. And the key, the key takeaway from regression is that everything regresses. I mean, even like trivial things like Snapshare, everything has a true mean that it regresses towards. But some things regress more than other things. You know, some things are very, very stable. Um, and typically anything that is at the offense's discretion tends to be more stable. Whether the offense scores a touchdown or not is not at the offense's discretion. You don't ask the offense before the play, do you want to score a touchdown this play or not score a touchdown this play? And the offense says, um, no, that's okay. I don't want to score this play. We'll score, we'll score three plays from now. That's not at the offense's discretion. But if you ask the offense, do you want to play O.J. Howard this play or not play O.J. Howard this play? The offense says, let's not play O.J. Howard this play. Let's play him three plays from now. That's purely discretionary. Um, and as a result, there's not like a bunch of confounding variables. It's not like the defense like played head games with the Texans to trick them into not playing O.J. Howard. They chose not to play O.J. Howard that much. And as a result, that's um, usage patterns tend to be much, much, much more stable than anything else. Whereas like per play, quote unquote, efficiency stats are I, I call them pseudoscience. Yeah. Um, yards per attempt for quarterbacks is good, but like yards per carry, that's my favorite target to dunk on in my regression to the main column because yards per carry is it's pseudoscience. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So what do you so what do you do as a fantasy player in week one and two as you're still gathering enough data to even begin, you know, doing the work that you do when you when you see players who perform well and you look at your team and um, where are you looking at guys and say, well, this particular tight end isn't performing well, didn't perform well for me last week. And there's enough, ev I feel like there's enough evidence for me to take some action and do something else. Or you look at him and he didn't perform particularly well, but you like the player, but somebody else also really shines. You know, what are things that influence you to, to take a chance, even though you don't have the data at this point? Well, the one thing is preseason average draft position. Um, we spend eight months basically from the end of last season until the kickoff of this season. Um, the fantasy industrial complex spends all that time butting heads and testing their theories and arguing and revising their opinions and updating to come up with this consensus that this is the best consensus of what the fantasy community thinks is going to happen this year. Um, and it's... It's funny to see people just throw that out the window after one week. Like you spent eight months crafting that and eight hours discarding it. <laughs> um, I have found in the past, and I do this every year, um, after week four, preseason ADP predicts future performance basically exactly as well as results to date. 
Meaning if you, if you had to, if you aliens descended on earth in week five and they said, Hey, this fantasy football thing looks fun. I want to play. Let's draft up a team. And you gave them a cheat sheet and there's two aliens. And you gave one alien a list of all of the players based on how many points they scored so far. And you gave another alien a list based on where the players were ranked before the season. And the two aliens drafted their teams. They, you know, they should be expected to do equally well. Both of those things are equally predictive. Um, you know, we can do better than either. We can we can combine preseason ADP with what we've seen so far, and that's better than either alone. Um, but the reality is that that the things that we thought for eight months are much, much, much more valid in terms of predicting what's going to happen than the things that we saw in week one. So early on, I tend to stay the course. You know, if I see somebody cut a player in my league who was highly drafted, I'm going to add him. Usually the first waiver run of the season, my favorite thing isn't that initial waiver run. It's that second round waiver run where you get like the, the people that that got cut too early. Uh, somebody on Twitter was telling me that someone in their league cut Trey Lance after one week. Um, who's yeah, he's at football guys. He's our quarterback 13 projected going forward. You know, he was drafted as a top 12 quarterback and they're cutting him after one week. That's not, you know, I'd stay the course. He's probably much, much, much closer to who we thought he was than who he looked in atrocious conditions in Chicago in week one. Um, so I'm not reacting too much. The stuff that I do react to is largely going to be usage. Um, I'm not, adding OJ Howard because he only played 18% of snaps, but I did cut Brevin Jordan in my first waiver run in one of my leagues this year because he only played, I think, 58% of snaps. And it's going to be hard for him to be fantasy relevant if he's not on the field 70% of the time. Um, that's so, mostly what I'm looking yeah, yeah, stuff that's purely discretionary, I think we can divine you know, new insights from. The fact that the Jaguars split Etienne and Robinson evenly, that's a fact that, that should matter to us. The fact that Robinson scored two touchdowns and Etienne scored zero, that's not a fact that should matter to us. So so something that I always heard, I remember having a doing a podcast with Greg Cosell many years ago where he brought up that NFL coaches and players always told him anecdotally that if a pl young player or a player that people weren't, um, didn't see as an established player in terms of c consistent usage begins to earn meaningful fourth quarter touches and snaps. Um, and I know those are two different things, but say fourth quarter snaps, we'll start with that because that's, I think that's more what he was meaning when they start to see meaningful snaps in the fourth quarter, that that's a, that's kind of a tip off that the, the team values that player. It, do you think that's something, have, have you heard any, read anything, done any type of research on something like that in terms of snap shares in, at certain quarter points or certain points of games? And is that telling or is that something, you know, that to you seems worthwhile to, to, to look into? Yeah, I think that's a totally plausible theory. It, it would not surprise me in the least if that was true. Um, I know that, like I said, when and whether a player plays is purely at the offense's discretion. Um, there's this concept called revealed preference, where NFL teams won't tell you what they think of their players, but they'll show you what they think of their players. You know, if an NFL team, it, you know, revealed preference, again, Robinson versus Etienne, the Jaguars 
won't come out and tell us, oh, we think Robinson and Etienne are both really good players, but they're going to show us. They're going to put both of yeah. them on the field. They're going to give them both their roles. Um, so the concept of earning snap share increasing as time goes on, that's a good illustration of reveal preference. I do know that uh, rookies are the only class of players in fantasy football that score more points in the second half of the season than they do in the first. Um, and that's, you know, like versus, you know, compared third year veterans or whatever, they score basically the same amount first and second halves of the season rookies. Um, and it's a pretty, it's a, it's a not insubstantial increase. It's like a 30% bump as a class. Um, obviously they're going to be counterexamples. They're going to be whatever, but it speaks very much to the fact that the NFL in a lot of cases is like a trust industry. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you can convince your coach that you can do um, or your quarterback that you can do. And, and that trust takes time to earn. Um, I would say that I think the NFL should be willing to. I think the NFL is a little slow to try new things. I mean, I think they make them earn too much trust without a they doubt. Should, they should probably go out on a limb a little bit more. But again, I'm dealing with outcomes. I'm not making prescriptions about this is what you should be doing. I'm just trying to say, this is what does happen. Yeah. You know, you can come by or whatever, but I can tell you that rookies are going to have more snaps in the second half of the season than they do in the first half of the season. They're going to get more meaningful touches. They're going to get more meaningful playing time. They're going to score a lot more fantasy points. Um, and that's, I hadn't heard of um, fourth quarter snaps as a good predictor of that, but that does seem like a predictor worth yeah. testing. I remember hearing it I, I, when I talked to Greg, it was, we were talking about Ray Rice after his first, during his first season and late in the year. And he talked about how early, earlier in the year, Rice got fourth quarter touches. And he said, that's a good, he said, from what I've observed and from what I've learned from other people, it was a, it was a good indicator that the coaches trust him enough to use him there. And it was fascinating with the Robinson and Etienne example. And what I wrote was breaking down the data, at least from a snap perspective, you know, it's one game, as you mentioned, we don't really, you know, it's the variable of opponent and situations are going to be different as we get into future weeks. But it looked, you know, and I'm, I'm editorializing the data, which is going to be dangerous. But at the same time, you know, what it appeared to be in this one game is that they, Tested him out early. He performed well in the small amount of touches he had. The Jaguars went were down early. It looked like in the second half, coaches made adjustments, and they decided to be a little more patient with the run game inside. They used Robinson more in the second half, and then he and Etienne split snaps in terms of running back play. They split snaps in the fourth quarter, and Robinson earned the ball of, you know, one more time, I think, one more or one less time than Etienne um, in the fourth quarter on meaningful and earned meaningful touches. Um, you know, and I actually they split touches on that end in terms of the, the, the number of touches I had. And he scored late in the fourth quarter as well. And he was used in the passing game and, and used as a blocker and a receiver. So, and because of that, you know, I look at that without looking at the data and what I think or the, the opinions that I want to form based on that tend to be, tend to, tend to lean towards, yeah, well, they see that Robinson is a more meaningful factor in the sense that, you know, they, the way they used Etienne from the numbers, it seemed like they used him more as a, he's got speed. He can, he can force the defense to declare, um, 
different positions or alignments and tip off what their coverages are going to look like when we motion him pre-snap. Also, the danger of motion him pre-snap is that there can be little indicators because the defense is going to react to that. And if they don't, you know, that means that we may have drawn a good coverage matchup with him where we can exploit him down the field with his speed. And they use him on a lot more perimeter plays because of the way he plays. What he does well, get him outside and in the space. Where he falters, well, I would say where he's more boom bust because he can play inside, but he's not as good as Robinson inside because of certain technical aspects of his game, such as footwork and decision-making on how he reads um, blocking and how he manipulates blocking isn't as advanced as Robinson between the tackles. And so if he hits it and he does the things that he can do and it works well, he's he's able to hit a crease hard and get chunky plays out of it. But relying on him down after down to make the right decision between the tackles and to use his footwork optimally. He he can do he can make cuts with bad footwork and get away with it on occasion, but there's also enough plays that when he does that, he hurts himself and his chances of earning yards that from what you see appears he should be able to gain. Whereas with Robinson, you know that he's got the acceleration to get into the secondary. He's just not going to get past it on on most likely. Uh, in, in most situations that, that a guy like Etienne will. Um, but you know that he may even be presented with more difficult obstacles at the line of scrimmage between the tackles and at least get an expected amount of yards that um, you would like to see from a runner, um, you know, at least from a coach's standpoint, to, to put them in favorable down and distance situations in the, in the next play. Yeah, and it's worth remembering, too, that um, when the Jaguars drafted Etienne, they didn't view him so much as a, as a James Robinson replacement as they did a Kadarius Tony replacement because they wanted Tony there. And then the Giants picked Tony earlier than anybody thought he was going to go. And they're like, well, who's the next best, you know, Tony type offensive weapon? And they landed on Etienne, uh, which that's, you know, it nobody seems to bat an eye at the thought that Kadarius Tony can coexist with Saquon Barkley. Right. Assuming he can ever get on the field. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't know why it's necessarily so implausible that, that Etienne could coexist with Robinson too. So so let's move on to uh you know processes blending, you know, with system, you know, in terms of processes blending systems and intuition. You know, explain explain this topic in terms of what you're thinking about um, you know, in this area that's worthwhile for us to have a discussion about. Yeah, so this is a kick I've kind of been on in the last couple of years when I noticed that, you know, all of my best processes, all of my best, um, all of the things that gave me an edge tended to share this commonality. And I started looking around in the industry, the football analysis industry and the fantasy football industry. And I noticed that most of the people who I thought were most successful and whose work was relatively admired and, and successful and proven over time, um, they were doing similar things. Um, when you're first starting out trying to analyze, I, people tend to skew in one way or the other, whether that's the, the film or the data, this this divide. I mean, I, I don't like the film and data divide. I, I tend to prefer like a processes versus outcomes divide. I think that's more meaningfully descriptive of what's going on. Um, but a lot of people will get into like the data, the objective data, and they will build out a model, which is good. You know, it, 
if you want to understand something, build build a model for it. That'll really help you get into the nuts and bolts. But then they kind of just blindly follow that model. Um, and even a good model, you know, if it starts spitting out data, that even a good model is going to spit out bad data sometimes. Yeah. Um, there's a saying that all models are wrong, some are useful. Um, or another one that the map is not the territory that it represents, right? If you have a map of England, that map is not England. England is actually different than the map. You know, there's like hills in England and there's not hills on the map. Um, and then on the other end, you get um, you get the people who are all about, you know, from the gut. And I, I say this realizing that you have a column literally titled from the gut. Um, but I mean, they're, they'll watch film and they'll be like, oh man, that guy looked really good. I'm going to move him up my rankings, right? There's not necessarily like a consistent process there. It's, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I feel. And a lot of people have been very successful with that approach too. But ultimately I think there's only so far it can take you. Um, and it seems to me that the people who are most successful, they will have a system whether it's a formal model, whether it's a framework like your well, like yours for a rookie scouting portfolio, where you have basically a checklist that you're going down and you're doing the same thing every time. You're creating a system and that system is creating um, results that are legible, right? That are, that are regular and ordered. You know, you can compare, um, you know, reception perception. Matt Harmon's reception perception is another um, very similar thing where like you can compare Deontay Johnson's success rate versus man coverage versus Devontae Adams' success rate versus man coverage. Now, the system doesn't tell you how they're succeeding against man coverage, but it's giving you a very objective, very ordered framework. But then on top of that, there needs to be room within your system for intuition to, to say, you know, this is what the framework is telling me. Um, and now there are kind of error bars around that framework that like, I can be higher on a player than the framework suggests I should be. I can be lower on the framework than, than the, um, lower player than the framework suggests I should be, but there have to be boundaries on that too. If you have a, a process that you think is a good process, if you have a strong model, if you have a strong framework and it's telling you like this player is actually good and your gut is saying, no, I think he's bad. There should be a limit. Like if your framework says he's good, you have to think he's at least so good, right? If your framework says he's bad, you have to think he's at least so bad. Um, so your framework is kind of creating boundaries. And then within those boundaries, your intuition can go wherever it wants. You can have your gut feeling. You can have this um, kind of free form, unstructured room to roam, um, but it has to operate within the boundaries. And so an example I had last year was I have a framework for estimating how long players will last in the NFL, how long their, their primes will last. And it's based on 30 plus years of historical aging patterns. Uh, and it's, it's selected so that like, if I'm comparing Russell Wilson, who's, I think he's 32 now, you know, a 32 year old likely future hall of famer, I'm also comparing him to other 32 year old likely future hall of famers. If I'm comparing, you know, a 24 year old up and comer, I'm comparing him to other 24 year old up and comers. And, um, you know, somebody was saying that they were talking about trading Russell Wilson for Lamar Jackson in Dynasty. Um, and somebody was saying, well, you know, there's a good chance that Russell Wilson actually lasts longer in the NFL than Lamar Jackson. And absolutely, that's, that's true. That is within the realm of possibility. You know, Tom Brady lasted 13 more years after his 32nd birthday. You know, some players only last three or four more years after their 24th birthday, you know. Um, so that's within the realm of possibility. But I have this framework 
that says, based on historically comparable players, I would expect Russell Wilson to last another, let's say, four years and Lamar Jackson to last another nine years. And there's room for my intuition to kind of chip away at the edges of that. I can say Lamar Jackson's style of play, I don't think it's going to age as well as Russell Wilson. So maybe I'm going to chip that nine downwards. You know, and Russell Wilson, you know, he takes a lot of hits, but he takes really good care of himself. And he's been, you know, remarkably healthy to this point. So maybe I'm going to chip his four years upwards. But there's boundaries. There's only so far I can chip it. And there's no way I can take that four high enough and that nine low enough that I'm going to say that I think that Russell Wilson is going to outlast Lamar Jackson. It's just not within the boundaries of my system. Yeah, I, and I certainly can relate to all of that, you know, when I think about studying rookies. Uh, uh, a good example of, a pl of, of players, I've seen players come out who, when I study running backs, and I remember making a statement, you know, I think a while back, maybe three or, three or four years ago on Twitter about, I found that running backs who cannot at least stalemate or defeat a, a hit from at least an indirect angle of approach from a linebacker. If they can't do that, they tend not to be NFL caliber starters or starter caliber NFL players. Um, and so somebody asked me about that. I think it was, jo I, I forget Josh's last name. He's a, he does a lot of good work on, you know, with data, I think at 538, um, but oh, Hermsmeyer. Hermsmeyer. Josh Hermsmeyer. Yeah. So Josh, Josh, Josh said, "Well, do you have data for that?" You know, and I and I did. So you know, I looked at my database, and I I don't remember the exact number, but it was over seven hundred running backs I had studied, and the only two that had gone on to be um, NFL caliber starters for at least one season were um, Marlon Mack and Darren McFadden. Who were both runners that I used to joke that they could they could have a running head start at top speed, get get to the linebacker level and and get knocked backwards by a um, a flat footed linebacker after building up a, a head of speed because their pad level was just jacked up, um, you know. And I think maybe it was one more. I think Tevin Coleman might have been the other guy on that list. Um, and none of them were like perennial starters either you know now injury injury impacted marlon mack but you know you could say jonathan taylor was going to impact that at some point anyway in hindsight um tevin coleman i mean same injuries probably continue to do things with him but i could say technically there were issues with that but that's an example of of you know from an intuit you know from a standpoint of you look at a player and and the the data will say some of that but when you start to look at players who are highly touted and they can't perform certain tasks you know that's part of it or I look at a player that's performed really well like I had Skylar Thompson rated as my number one quarterback this year and it was by a fairly large margin for my grading system the way I observe it that it was it was significant that he was that high I mean it was on a level where um he would have been in the same territory of grades that I had for quarterbacks who've been very good like Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, um, you know, were good examples of that. But I knew, you know, one, you just know that one is observation. You look around and you say, well, he's at the, he's at the East West Shrine game. He's not at the senior bowl. He didn't get an invitation for that. So you can see how the NFL already views him. 
um, which is as a, a fringe third-day prospect, essentially, because that's what the Senior Bowl. Now they may be going, trying to go after higher-profile players in the coming years, but that's, this is how the NFL has basically divided up where the players go. Um, and so there's that. He ends up getting drafted in the seventh round. Um, and while he performed well in the preseason, that's not necessarily an indicator for quarterback play of, of performing well as starters in the NFL. Um, still, you know, for me with my process and what I, my gut feeling about watching him play is he's a much better quarterback than how the NFL's viewing him. But I can't, but intuition tells me and or past experience, you know, past experience tells me and even my gut feeling is like, I, my gut feeling says I like him. I think he can be much better than people think. But I can't recommend with my system. I can't recommend him and say, you have to go get him. I'm still keeping him my number one guy based on the talent. But then when the post-draft comes out and I have to re-rank based on where they're drafted, account for draft capital and, and fit, then at that point it's like, okay, who are the quarterbacks that I'm going to give a chance above him that I didn't like as much? Malik Willis, you know, that's an example of someone. But then I can't go far enough with, you know, recommending Desmond Ritter above him, even though Desmond Ritter will likely get a chance earlier. I'd look at Ritter and, and, and I look at his game and also the intuition I have about how he performs within my matrix of, of, of information. And I think I would rather take my chances on failing on Skylar Thompson than, than the possibility that Desmond Ritter succeeds. Yeah. That's a great example that you've got, you know, I think somebody who is overly married to the system would keep Skylar Thompson at number one after the draft. I think somebody who was overly married to intuition might bump Desmond Ritter way up um, just because, you know, but it's, it's all about, you know, there's got to be boundaries. There's got to be room to move. It can't be so constrictive that you're, you're married to a take once you have it, but it can't be so much freedom to move that you're, you're moving off of good takes too early. You know, some takes are not wrong. They're just late. Um, and I, you know, I've talked to you about this before. I've talked to Bob Henry of Projector at Football Guys about this before, and it's very similar. And, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of the most successful and most admired people in the space. And it's the same that, that you've got this system and the system is the system. You're not changing the system to get your desired outcome. If the system tells you something, you believe it. You have to trust your system, but also you know, the system is not a straitjacket, that, that there's room to maneuver within that system and there's room to have agency and human opinions on top of that. Yeah, and you have to find, and you have to examine your system to, to you also have to have a system for examining your system. And, so, and that's an important part of it too, is that you have to look at it and say, well, when I, you know, for me, the easiest way is the system is based on definitions for the RSP. It's based on definitions that are, that are phrased in a way for me to be able to answer the question yes or no about a criteria point with a player from what I observe on film. Can he do these things? Does he show that he can do this? Now, sometimes the answer is there's no data points to observe for that. So I don't know. It doesn't apply, you know, it doesn't apply. And then I have to answer, approach that question by, do I, because I didn't see it, do I assume yes or no from how I score it? Because I have to 
give an answer. And ultimately, used to, uh, at very beginning, I used to put not applicable and not give any and and give him credit for it. You know, and I realized that I can't do that. Like he has to prove that he can do it. And then maybe in my more subjective observations, you know, as I write it up in commentary, I can say I didn't see him do these things, which is probably you know his score is going to be lower but i have to think that based on my histories of looking at at wide receivers transitioning to the nfl these tasks usually are ones that most players whether they're backups or starters attain when they get in the league within a couple of years um you know so but if they if i find that i can't answer with a simple yes or no that the the question i'm asking isn't the right question it needs to be broken down in some way something some qualifier or detail has to be added to it um i have to re-examine maybe what it is i'm asking and then test that out to see if that's if that fits those situations and that was a good that was a good 10 that was probably a good 10 years of what i was doing at first with my process was discovering that you know, how I defined vision for running backs was just not enough or, you know, wide receiver play that what he did at the line of scrimmage against press man coverage that I didn't have nearly enough criteria to, to look at that and to, to study that and refine it. And so there's a, there's an importance on that. Your system has to continue to grow, but you have to have a, a system for, to, to kind of, you know, diagnostically check it, um, you know throughout the work that you do and i find that that's what my 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 blackboard back there is for is that i'll write notes on my excel sheets and my and and in, on, on take notes in different places about things i'm encountering as i'm studying somebody that you know during the week and say well this raises a good question that i haven't considered or i've i've seen but i still don't quite feel like i have a good answer for it maybe this is the way that i need to answer it and then i'll I'll start researching on videos or books from coaches um, or uh, about what, how they teach certain techniques or what they look at from as a concept. And then I start to, you know, I put that on my board and I start to, you know, deal with, you know, how I'm going to approach that, that question. Sometimes I'll have a question framed out that I don't use officially from my site, from my, for my process yet for the RSP, but I'll, I'll, I'll observe that. I'll observe the answers for it and note the answers for it, but not use it yet until I just see how it bears out if I'm not sure. And then, and kind of go from there. And that's kind of a way of how I, you know, kind of do that with my own process. So, so yeah. Yeah. And that's really the, the greatest advantage of systems and why I think everybody needs one is they are extraordinarily easy to expose to scrutiny. Um, you know, if your system is bad, it's much easier to find that out than if your intuitions are bad. Yeah. Um, and and it's easy to test and to iterate and to tweak because everything's laid out in black and white. You know, there's no subjectivity. Um, you know, the subjectivity kind of has to be separate from that. There, there needs to be that objective element that you can't put a thumb on the scale and game game the process um, kind of to serve as a, as a check on you. Um, the New York Times had this cool illustration once where they said, all right, we've come up with this imaginary rule for numbers. 
right? Here are four numbers that conform to the rule. The numbers were two, four, six, eight or something, or no, it was two, four, eight, 16 or something. Now we want you to try and figure out what the rule is, okay? And here's a form you can enter in as many sets of four numbers as you like, and we'll tell you if it, yes, it conforms to the rule or no, it does not conform to the rule. And then you try and guess what the rule is. And they found that like people would come up with an idea of what the rule was. Okay, the numbers are doubling every time. And then they would test like two or three things that would follow that rule that would that would be true if that rule was true. You know, okay, we tried two, four, eight, sixteen. Let's try, you know, three, six, twelve, twenty-four. And New York Times says yes. And after two or three guesses, they say, I think this is the rule. Um, because basically when we're when we're looking at systems, we want when we have a belief, we want that belief to be proven right. And we're gonna go out of our way to make sure that that belief is proven right. But the people who got the right answer, I mean, the real system was that each number was bigger than the number before. The people who got the right answer were ones who were going out of their way to prove it wrong. They say, I think that the numbers are doubling every time. Let's give an example that New York Times would say no if that was the rule. You know, we're, we're trying to falsify this belief. We have this belief. So let's try two, three, four, five. And if the New York Times says no, then okay, that's a good point in favor of that rule. And if the New York Times says yes, then okay, our rule was wrong. We have we have proven our rule wrong. And the most accurate people are actively trying to prove their processes wrong at all times. Yeah. Because that's how that's how the right stuff survives and the wrong stuff gets cast out. If if nobody's challenging you, if nobody's trying to prove you wrong, including you, if you're not trying to prove yourself wrong it's very easy to have wrong beliefs that you're just carrying with you over and over and over through time. You know, if you want to actually be right, the only way to be right is to take all the things that are wrong and stop believing them. Yeah. Uh, and the only way to find the things that are wrong is to look for the things that are wrong. And that's the great advantage of systems is it's easy, easy, easy to spot the wrong stuff. I mean, sometimes it's work, but it's, it's doable. It's possible to spot the wrong stuff. Whereas intuitions and guts, it's very easy to say, well, I thought this guy would be good. And he wasn't, but here's all these qualifiers. And I'm going to look for all the reasons why he didn't succeed. You know, whereas the guys who you thought would be good and they were good, you're not looking at all the reasons why they succeeded when they, when they couldn't have. Yeah, that's why. So it, yeah. go for it. No, that's why my, that's why my long, my long um, term columns called the gut check. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and that's, and, and I mean, anecdotally, I remember it's, it's a fascinating topic because you look at you know I looked at Patrick Mahomes I saw two plays from Patrick Mahomes against LSU in a bowl game while I was getting ready to write the RSP and I had never seen Patrick Mahomes before um, it, it just happened to be it was on my I turned on my TV to check something and it, they were there was a replay of that game I saw two plays and I remember Turning and I turned off the TV because I thought if I watch any more, I'm going to get sucked into this. And he already looks to me like one of the best prospects I'm going to see. And I need to forget about this right now. And then I started thinking about that and I laughed because years before I had read Dave want an interview where Dave Wanstead said it took all of like one, I think one or two plays for me to award Dion Lewis a scholarship. Literally watched like two minutes of his tape, like two minutes of his tape, not even that. Like it was like, I think he said two plays and he turned off the tape and he said, get that kid a scholarship to Pitt. 
And and I thought that's just ridiculous. Okay, that's and you know I I thought that was kind of ridiculous at that time. And then the more I started doing this, the more you start looking at certain things and looking at things in detail, and you begin to understand that why coaches have moments like that that can be successful, but at the same time, when I had that moment with Patrick Mahomes, I thought really my thought was. Ooh, this is going to be a fun evaluation. And then I just left it at that and just turned off the TV and just said, I'm going to forget about him and move on. I'm just, no, I'm looking forward to watching him to see what this is going to be about. But I do the same thing with players who people think are, are going to be good. And I'm, and I've heard that they're supposed to be good. And then I watch him. And after a few, few games, I may look and go, Ooh, this is going to be fun because I don't, I don't think he's as good as that, as, as, as what it looks like people are saying, you know, let me test that. Let me make sure. And part of, and that's the most fun and most difficult part of this process is that when you have players who are outliers from what your, your consensus is, is talking about. And sometimes I don't discover that till I put it out. Cause I just didn't pay attention to other people and I try not to, but it's easy that, you know, if you're on Twitter and you follow anybody and you're doing putting so things on social media every day in this space, you can't help but observe it. It's just going to happen. Or I go, I go to the local Italian deli down the street and they have, you know, five TVs up at the bar on the other side of the partition. And I look up and next thing I know, I see someone, someone we know talking about, uh, you know, about a player and I'm watching that player. And next thing I know, I'm like, okay, so I know that, I know this guy obviously is highly rated. Oh, and they got that little statue with the stiff arm right there that uh, that they're associating with him. Okay, so that that's someone that needs to be on my radar. Oh, he won that? I didn't know he won that. I've already watched five games of him, but it's a, it, you know, that happened with Lamar Jackson. But it's a, it's that whole thing where you can look at it and realize that, um, it's. You, you you have to get to a point that whether you really like a player or you really don't like a player, gut feeling wise, that system is a really great check and balance for that. And I try really hard to look at a player that I feel that one way strongly or one way one way or the other in a very strong way. Josh Allen was an example of that. Like Lamar Jackson, into in my intuition was very strong that I liked him. Josh Allen, I watched the Nebraska game and my thought was this is the number one ranked prospect, this guy who threw like four interceptions and looked like, you know, a blindfolded Drew Locke, you know, in his worst game. Like, is that, that's what you're telling me? But as time went on, you know, you have to try really hard and go, okay, well, what is it? What is it? You know, just uh, adhere to what you're processing. And my process and looking at like Jackson was, yes, he's good he's good now the question is is where is a team going to be flexible enough to use his talents to the degree that they do because of his outside throwing you know his throwing to the perimeter doesn't have the velocity on the ball that most teams expect so now that puts him in a tighter box of how teams may want to use him and that's going to drive down his draft capital which may drive down opportunity so when the ravens selected him in the first round at the end of the first round that was a good thing for him because he knew they had a plan for him, or at least there was an indication that they were going to have a plan for him. Um, whereas with Allen, I'd watch him, and while I still didn't like him, uh, you know, like intuition-wise, I looked at him and go, there's a path 
for his potential. There's a path for him to get better. And if he gets the draft capital that it looks like he's going to get, he's going to get opportunities to grow. And then after that first year, you know, I still, I still approached him very cautiously, but I was always trying to give avenues to where he could, he could develop. Now I didn't, you know, as I've said a lot of times, I really didn't expect him to play to the level that he has. I think there are explanatory factors as to why that did, why that he got to that level. And part of it is him. Part of it was the scheme that he was in and developed and how they allowed him to develop. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's a, to me, what was fascinating about, about that is that it, it, it just reinforced to me that if you fought, you stick to that process, at least you're not going to go, he has no chance in hell of being a starting quarterback in the NFL. I don't particularly like him, but I can see a path to where that success is. These are the markers you're going to want to look at along the way. So if you're being cautious, you know, if he keeps hitting these markers, then then you need to take a chance on him. You need to consider him as an investment. Whereas if he doesn't do these things early, then then yeah, then I may at some point it's going to tip the scales and go, well, I never really felt good about him, but now now it, this, there's more confirmation for me to say I, I'm not going to project him um, to have a, a positive outcome. At the same time, you know, even someone like Wood mentioned him this week um, on our base camp board, saying to the effect, he goes, he's probably, you know, he's one of the examples of players that has, I think he said setback scouting or, or like, um, you know, really kind of flew in the face of the processes of what post, most people would do because now, now teams are looking for, he thinks now teams are looking for, you know, Josh Allen types, guys who were raw, who are going to develop in three years and become really top players and try and follow that template with to a to the point of failure in the same way that I think teams looked at Patrick Mahomes and you kept hearing comparisons to Jordan Love and Drew Locke and um, to Patrick Mahomes because they made certain types of throws, but the, the inner workings of their game didn't remotely compare. It was very superficial. Um, and so... I think that he looks at Allen from that perspective. And I, and I would ag- tend to agree based on what I've seen with the NFL and tend to agree that, that Josh Allen is kind of the exception that proves the rule more than he was the rule. Yeah. I mean, my one qualifier would be, you know, the NFL was already looking for Josh Allen types yes. as evidenced by the fact that Josh Allen was a high draft pick. This is not anything new. It's not like the NFL's like, right. Oh, Hey, maybe we should draft, you know, like, toolsy uh developmental prospects high well lo and behold yeah right (laughs) right right like they were already doing that that's nothing new maybe maybe it'll skew them a little bit more in that direction than they otherwise would have but this is not introducing any new anything new to the nfl scouting process definitely not so listen this was a fun discussion um we'll be back next week for more um rsp film and data and, uh, you know, thank Adam for joining me once again. And we appreciate the, the good feedback that we've gotten um, this week about the show. And if there's anything that you would like to ask, um, you know, you can email me or tweet at Adam or myself um, and let us know. And we'd be happy to consider it for conversation. You guys have a great week.